What is this? Leftovers. Enjoy. There is no flavor. There are no spices. Where are the chips? Somebody stole them. Did you not tell them they were the Lord's chips? I was trying to. You are useless, Ignacio! Silence, brothers. This is the worst lunch I have ever had. Your only job is to cook. Do you not realize I have had diarrhea since Easter's? Okay. Maybe I'm not meant for these duties. Cooking duty. Dead guy. Duty. Maybe it's time for me to get a better duty. Welcome to Misfit Apparitions, the podcast. I'm Don. Now I'm Ernest. Thank you for joining us as we talk about locations we've investigated that are known for paranormal activity as well as other subjects related to the field. We apologize for this episode being a week late, but the research called for it. You will see what I mean. And we must also apologize for the way this podcast is going to sound. One of our microphones went dead right before we recorded this. We are recording this in a unique situation and the mic cable, we believe, is bad. So we're working on one mic, so it may sound a little weird, but we want to get this podcast out because it's, it's pretty good, we think. So be sure to check us out at MisfitApparitions.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel with the handle at Misfit Apparitions. Listen to the podcast on our website, our YouTube channel, or wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review a like or a thumbs up and spread the word about us. We appreciate it as it helps the podcast get recognized. And check out Misfit Apparitions The Stuff, our online merch store hosted at redbubble.com. From stickers to ball caps and mugs to t-shirts, you're bound to find something you'd like. Any proceeds made from the stuff go towards the team's travel expenses, and we thank you for looking. If you have any comments, concerns, or questions, please drop us an email at mopod at misfitapparitions.com or ask us directly from a social media platform that you feel comfortable using. Now that that's out of the way, let's talk about what's been going on because it's been quite a while since Ernest has been on the podcast. <laughs> Man, you look older. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. But, uh, you know, previous podcasts, it, uh, we had Dr. Epperly. Yes, I thought and, that was uh, good. I believe that. I mean, those are pretty good podcasts. Yeah, we stretched Felisca out as much as we could, couldn't we? <laughs> uh, we did that because we thought we were going to um, put the investigation video as part of the podcast, but we talked about that, or I talked about that last time. Yeah. Um, so what's been going on since, uh, what's it been, January, February? I think we have a new F Super Bowl champion, right? Yeah, uh, the Chiefs won. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, 
NASCAR's back up again uh, for yeah. anybody that follows that. Hockey playoffs are right now. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And, you know, baseball started. Baseball started. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, man, it's been a while mm-hmm. <laughs> since I've been. COVID's still <laughs> talked about. <laughs> Pol- political season's in full swing. There's, of course, people pissed off at each other all the time. Yeah. I can't believe it's already almost April, the end of April. Yeah, we're, what, one-third of the way through this year. Yeah, I know. Unbelievable. It just goes by so fast. All right, so in this episode, we're going to talk about, I think, one of the coolest places we've ever investigated. Wouldn't you agree, Ernest? Yes. Yes, it is. Malvern was outstanding. Oh, when I first got there, it was just, like, massive. So this is pretty big. It's pretty big, and it, it wasn't until later that we learned that there's actually four parts of the building. Yeah, I think we all had a good time. And I think the lesson learned, at least for me, was never do back-to-back overnight investigations. Yeah. Because <laughs> you get sleepy. Yeah, you get tired, but also the weather up there is just different from Texas. Yeah, small town, cold, Midwest weather in November. Yeah, it was something. Yeah. But before becoming a popular paranormal destination... The 10,000-square-foot Malvern Manor started off as just a regular building. Please pay close attention now. There are many turns on this building's history highway. Malvern, Iowa, originally called Milton, but renamed after an existing Milton, Iowa, was discovered, established itself sometime in the fall of 1869 after the completion of the Burlington and Missouri Railroad. One of Malvern's first residents, John Paddock, and his wife built their home and the town's first store. Added to those buildings was the fort to be built in the winter of 1869-1870, a boarding house named Cullers House by a man named Jacob M. Cullers. Captain Cullers, as he was referred to, earned his title as a member of the 5th Regiment Illinois Cavalry during the American Civil War, serving as private, second lieutenant, and finally captain. After Milton changed its name to Malvern, Captain Culler changed the building's name from Cullers House to Malvern House, which continued to operate as a boarding house. Sometime shortly after Malvern became established, Isaac Bain Ringland and his family moved into Malvern House. In January 1872, Captain Culler sold Malvern House to W.H. Anderson. Ownership of Malvern House changed hands perhaps more than once when sometime in 1885, Peter Smith became its owner until his death in 1888. Also in 1888, Marianne, matriarch to the longtime resident Ringland family and widow of Isaac, who himself died in 1880, passed away. The history is a little fuzzy on who took ownership of the property after the death of Peter Smith, but Isaac Ringland's youngest daughter Maggie and her husband Robert Emmett Kirkpatrick Meller, or R.E.K. Meller, resided there until moving to Wayne, Nebraska in early 1890. A little less than a year later, the Ringland home would be sold, expanded considerably, and become Malvern's popular cottage hotel. In 1890, businesswoman Julia Betts purchased the property and began a huge renovation project that added a two-story addition to its west and north sides. She opened the cottage hotel in 1891 and, as successful as it was, decided to put it up for sale in 1895 and retire from the business. Businessman George Arthur Avril purchased the hotel at the end of that year and made improvements to it, such as adding a basement to house a furnace and laundry room, installing hot water fixtures, remodeling the porch, and adding fresh paint to the entire building. He continued making improvements throughout his time as owner, including the building of a coal and wood house, 
and the installation of a massive hot air furnace. In the summer of 1900, George Avril sold the cottage hotel to his son, Adelo Daniel. About six months later in the winter of 1901, a minor explosion occurred in the hotel that awoke all the guests. An acting janitor added kerosene to a low fire that exploded, burst a heat pipe, and blew out thimbles from the chimneys upstairs. In August 1903, Adelo Avril traded the hotel to Robert Rickleton for a tract of land in Missouri. Sometime after Mr. Rickleton's ownership, Robert Callan acquired the Cottage Hotel and dealt with its temporary closing for renovations in October 1905. Weeks later, the hotel was sold to H.J. Bauer for 300 acres of Missouri River bottom lands. On November 15, 1905, the Cottage Hotel reopened with new furnishings and new management. In late July 1906, real estate agents Cadwell and Salyers acquired the hotel for 1,120 acres of land near Bassett, Nebraska. Less than a year later, J.J. Hubble purchased a hotel and temporarily closed it to make repairs and paint. With his experience at Malvern City Hotel, Mr. Hubble increased the patronage at the Cottage Hotel. He took out a spread in the Malvern Leader, the local newspaper, to convince readers of his justification for increasing the hotel's meal prices from 25 cents to 35 cents. He did it simply and logically, ending the spread with the words, quote, Live and let live is our motto at the Cottage Hotel. End quote. In the spring of 1908, after being closed a few months, the hotel reopened under the direction of experienced hotel man J.R. Culley. In the spring 1909, William Stamper took over the hotel but left it in December 1910. The Cottage Hotel, or the building, was then advertised at a sheriff's sale, prompting the local newspaper to state, quote, It is hardly probable that anything will be done toward opening a hotel in it again. End quote. Alas, the Cottage Hotel reopened in February 1911 with cleaned up grounds, repaired walks, and trimmed trees. In May 1911, city water was piped into the hotel. In May 1914, burnt suits from the kitchen chimney had fallen on the roof and set it ablaze. It was quickly brought under control by the fire department. In the summer of 1914, Mr. and Mrs. Ed Conrad took over the hotel. The Conrads made many improvements to the Cottage Hotel, such as bringing in new furniture, rugs, and furnishings. They also put in a new furnace, bathrooms, and toilet rooms. They replaced the wallpaper in all the rooms, as well as mattresses and blankets. The following is taken from the August 10, 1914 Mill County Tribune newspaper, and gives us an example of the times back then and the level of morality shown by Mr. and Mrs. Ed Conrad. Headline reads, Mix Foolishness with Boldness. Byline reads, Malvern landlady ejects a traveling man and local woman who misbehave. And the story goes. About 5 o'clock last Saturday evening, Mrs. Conrad, proprietress of the Cottage Hotel at Malvern, noted a well-dressed woman occupying a settee in the yard of the hotel. Mrs. Conrad invited her to the ladies' parlor. The well-dressed woman said she would remain where she was, as she was expecting to meet some friends soon. Mrs. Conrad went about her work and at about 5.30 had occasion to pass through the hotel parlor and found there the woman and a man acting affectionately and in whispering converse. Shortly thereafter, the man came into the office and asked if he could secure a room as he wished to wash up a little. Mrs. Conrad inquired if he wanted a room for the night. He answered in the negative. Mrs. Conrad then told him he was welcome to use the washroom. 
He then demanded to know whether he could not hire a room if he was willing to pay for it. Thereupon the landlady told him to register. This he did signing the name A.F. Rash Omaha. Mrs. Conrad started to conduct him to a room on the lower floor in the east part of the house. As they were passing through the parlor, the man said to the woman in the parlor, Come, we will go to a room. Mrs. Conrad then asked, Is this lady your wife? He answered affirmatively, whereupon Miss Conrad said, You will have to register as such before I can give you a room. The man remarked to Miss Conrad, You can put it down. He was informed that she did not do such things. Guests must register in their own handwriting. He thereupon returned and added after his name, quote, and wife. The register reads, A.F. Rash and wife, Omaha, Nebraska. They then were shown a room. Shortly after six o'clock, the occupants were called to supper. It chanced that a Malvern physician, taking supper at the same hotel, addressed the woman as Mrs. Hall, whom many in Malvern know. Mrs. Conrad, convinced of the situation, as soon as the couple reached the parlor from their supper, told them to get out, as she would not harbor such people. Mr. Rash thereupon became insulting in his remarks, and at this juncture, Mr. Conrad took a hand in the affair. The outcome was that the two guests were forcibly ejected, and not in the most gentle manner. The ejected guests went south towards the fairgrounds. Marshal Jones was called and requested to intercept them until a warrant could be secured and arrested the woman in front of the old depot building near the elevator. The man had gone to secure an auto. He returned after time but of course was not permitted to proceed on his expected journey. Justice Hammond issued a warrant charging the parties fracturing the Seventh Commandment. The trial was called at 8 o'clock in A.E. Cook's office. In the meantime, Mr. Rash secured the services of Mr. Cook to defend him, and he asked for a dismissal on the grounds of faulty indictment. Since the offenders were both married, no indictment for adultery stands unless filed by the wife or husband of the parties committing the offense. Justice Hammond sustained a demand for dismissal. Mr. Conrad then asked for a warrant to hold them for another charge, that of disorderly conduct, to give them time to learn the facts concerning the marriage of Mr. Rash. The marriage of the woman in the case was, of course, not questioned. While debating the matter of another warrant, the marshal and justice decided they had no authority to hold the parties, and they took advantage of the situation and got out of town by auto. This effort on the part of Mr. and Mrs. Conrad to maintain a clean hotel should be encouraged by every person who desires to promote the welfare of the town. By their act, they have given an earnest of their intentions to conduct a hotel which will be a credit to the town. End of story. In the summer of 1915, a man named Henry O'Brist took over the Cottage Hotel and began much-needed repairs both inside and outside. A more serious fire than those in years past struck the hotel in early fall of 1916. Before it was discovered during breakfast, the fire had already broken through the kitchen's roof, and by the time firemen arrived to contain it, the fire spread to the main building. It took some time, but the fire was eventually put out. The fire's origin was believed to have been caused by a blazing suit dropped on the roof. In the early fall of 1917, improvements were made to the sidewalks and parking areas. In January 1936, a minor fire originated from a defective flue but was contained before any serious damage was done. 
The Piper Hotel era began when Ralph Knox Piper purchased the Cottage Hotel in the late summer of 1940 and completely renovated it with a new outside facing, modern plumbing in the rooms, and a neon sign hanging on the street in front of the hotel. Mr. Piper died unexpectedly of a heart attack in February 1949. From its time as a boarding house named Colors House in 1870 to its final days as the Piper Hotel in 1956, over 85 years of Malvern hostelry at this location came to an end when three women, Bessie Smith, Mildred Peterson, and Yvonne Witterquist, purchased the property to remodel the building and convert it to a nursing and rest home. Nishna Cottage had its open house on Sunday, October 14, 1956, and officially opened a short time later. On February 1, 1957, the three-person partnership dissolved when Mildred Peterson Johnson moved away. Bessie Smith and Yvonne Widerquish remained as partners. Then on June 30, 1957, the remaining partnership dissolved, leaving Yvonne Widerquist the sole owner and operator of Nishna Cottage as of July 1, 1957. In the late summer of 1958, a fire nearly broke out when a patient who had been smoking a cigar in his room left it unattended when he left his room. An overstuffed chair in his room began smoldering, which prompted a quick-thinking attendant to hurriedly put it out with a fire extinguisher. After that, smoking restrictions inside the facility were enforced. In the summer of 1959, Mrs. Whittaquist sold Nishna Cottage to Geraldine Foster, who officially took ownership and operations on September 1, 1959. In August 1960, a new fire protection sprinkler system began being installed that provided complete fire protection for the building. On August 21, 1962, ground was broken on the single-story addition to the cottage's east side, and in late March 1963, occupancy of the new wing began. The new addition allowed Nishna Cottage to accept 13 additional patients to its pre-addition capacity of 41. In the summer of 1966, the cottage was approved by the Veterans Administration as a facility to provide further veteran care. A wiring short in January 1967 set bedding on fire but was detected and extinguished before causing any damage. On June 22, 1976, Nishna Cottage lost its distinction as being a nursing home and instead became a residential care facility after state inspectors determined that its halls were not wide enough to roll a bed down. In the fall of 1984, residents received a 16-passenger bus equipped with a wheelchair lift courtesy of its owner, Geraldine Foster-Reed. In the April 10, 1997 edition of the Malvern Leader, Geraldine Foster-Reed put out a letter to the editor denying a persistent rumor circulating in Malvern about the closing of Nishna Cottage. In the fall of 2003, an announcement in the Malvern Leader declared that Nishna Cottage would soon be under new ownership and management and be called Heritage House. Just over a year later, due to citations of an unsafe electrical system, missing patient records, lack of an infection control program, and fire safety problems, which alone pose an imminent danger to its 10 residents and staff, and because its owner and management failed to address these citations, Heritage House closes doors on April 30, 2005. For the next 11 years, the building remained closed until Josh Hurd happened to be at the right place and at the right time and took ownership of what is now called Malvern Manor. But enough with the history already, right? 
Well, having been a nursing home and then residential care for nearly 50 years, it would not be unreasonable to expect a fair number of deaths. Now, Ernest, tell us about the residential spirits inside Malvern Manor. I believe that's what our listeners really want to hear. Okay, here we go. The attic. Besides the ceilings, rafters showing evidence of a fire some time ago, perhaps the one in 1916, not much is known about the attic other than it was most likely used for storage. Paranormal teams have talked about feelings of nausea and hearing scratching, voices and growls. And also here we go, Captain Collars. As Don told us, Captain Collars built what is now called Malvin Manor. Of course, it wasn't close to as large as it is now, but he did start it off, and it was the fourth building standing in Malvern back in 1870. The captain did not die in the building. He passed away in Texas. But perhaps his obvious strong ties to the building support claims by guests as seeing a male spirit calling himself the captain in room 24, located on the West Wing's second floor. Now let's move on to Gracie. Gracie suffered from mental illness, specifically schizophrenia and disassociative identity disorder, or what was once referred as multiple personality disorder. Supposedly the nursing staff documented her in a one hour sitting as having 13 separate unique personalities. Paranormal teams have reported that Gracie's spirits tend to favor males whenever they come visit her room. And if they sit in the room's wheelchair or lay on the bed, she might tug on their pants or touch their private area. Her eyeglasses remain in her room, which Don bravely wore for a time when trying to get her to communicate with him. Now let's talk about Hank or Henry. If you have seen the film Grumpy Old Man, you have seen what kind of a person Hank was. He was vulgar, scorned, women, and overall just mean. He supposedly used to sit outdoors and throw rocks at passing children. Hank's room contains a dresser full of his clothing and, as gross as it sounds, fingernail clippings. Now let's talk about Inez Mae Gibson, the only resident spirit whose obituary we were able to locate in overall just a very sad story. Inez was 12 on December 21st, 1900, when just coming home from school and jumping rope outside, she was discovered by her younger brother, Otto, hanging by her jump rope in the closet. Many believed it was suicide because neither of her divorced birth parents wanted to care for her, so she was left with her aunt and uncle. However, a jury was put together to investigate the circumstances and conditions surrounding her life and death. According to the jury, Inez was in a cheerful mood that day. She had made good grades and her uncle agreed to pay for her each good grade she received. Christmas around the corner and she looked forward to buying Christmas gifts. She enjoyed skipping rope, but she had a habit of carrying her jump rope by wrapping it around her body and or neck. When she went to her closet to reach an upper shelf, the jump rope caught on a high hook where she normally hung the rope and then she slipped from the chair she was standing on. The rope already around her neck led to her choking to death. And guess what? None of this occurred on this property. It happened in a home across the street. It's not known why the spirit of Inez occupies the West Wing's last room upstairs. 
Now let's talk about Jeff. Jeff is an unknown spirit. He's been reported as saying he's new to the manor. He's also been known to play practical jokes on paranormal teams and will even lock them in the attic even though the door to the attic does not lock. Next, lovers of rooms 17 and 18. These are reportedly the spirits of two men who resided here during the nursing home days. They apparently loved each other and lived in rooms directly across from one another for at least five years. The next one, one or number one. This is a spirit that seems to be the most feared, even by the other spirits. It roams the building and attempts to instill fear and terror into individuals and teams, trying to get them to leave the property. Next one is Rebecca. Another sad story is that of a Rebecca, a 30-something-year-old female whose husband dropped her off at the home for unknown reasons. She was known to stand in front of the mirror in her room and pluck out her hair, one hair at a time. She was also on heavy medication that her body didn't respond well to. They may have led to her lack of eating and drinking, causing her health to decline. Rebecca's spirit supposedly responds well to females, for obvious reasons. The next one is the shadow man, possibly a residual haunt. A former employee of the nursing home spoke about a male patient who was six foot seven inches tall, mentally challenged, non-communicative, and who had a history of murder. Think Chief Broadham from the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This man, according to the employee, would chase the nursing staff down the long hallway during rounds. Shadow Man is described as being a very tall, human-looking dark figure who runs at people at a super-fast speed. As Melvern Manor owner Josh Hurd describes, traveling 40 feet in less than a second is pretty darn fast. Now let's talk about Susie. Susie's room is full of crayons and coloring books, like those found in an eight or nine-year-old girl's room. Mentally, Susie was an eight or nine-year-old girl, but in actuality, she was a middle-aged patient of the nursing home. Susie's spirit confines herself only to her room. She does not leave because she's either scared or unable. Her room has a growing number of crayons and coloring books gifted to her by paranormal teams. Well, that's Malvern Manor. It's a great place that we hope to visit again real soon. Maybe for two or three nights. Especially because the couches are so comfortable. Again, we apologize for the delay in getting this out there, but the research was overwhelmingly fascinating. I think I even became obsessed for a week or two. As always, thank you for listening. And finally, remember, it's not always the things in your life that matter. It's the memories. Cherish those and those you make them with. See you next time on the podcast. Goodbye.